Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorization number TP slash 01005. What a pleasure it is to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a great Australian involved in sport. His voice has been the soundtrack to many of the greatest moments in Australian sport in recent years. And not only is he recognised in this country as being without peer, but he is recognised around the world. Bruce McAvaney is my guest. Macca? Welcome. Good to catch up. We've known each other for a long time, Peter, haven't we? It's been a while. It has. It has um, been a long time. We had a common interest, didn't we? We did have a common interest, and I think we probably still have a few common interests along the way. How are you keeping? Because without exception, when I say that I've seen you or I'm about to talk to you, people say, how's Bruce? Look, my health's good, Peter. I've got uh, a form of leukemia, but I've got the best form of it, and uh, I'm under no treatment at the moment. I have blood tests on a pretty regular basis, but... Um, in between those blood tests, I don't really think about it too much. I, I get a bit tired than I used to. Um, it's probably had a bit of an effect on my immune system, but I'm in good hands. And uh, look, I'm 65, Pete. Um, I'm 65. Uh, in a few days, yeah, I think, from exactly, when we record this. Exactly. So yeah. I'm feeling as good as I have for a while. So love my job still. Um, and, you know, it's a funny thing when it, it became public, um, things did change for me a bit because. It's a question I get asked a lot. And you've got, I guess, two ways of responding. One is honestly or one is probably fobbing it off. And I try and be honest. And um, I'm going well at the moment. That's the truth. I don't want to dwell on this. And I'll ask you maybe one question because there are so many other questions I want to ask. But you kept it quiet. You did a good job of keeping it quiet. I wanted to keep it quiet because I didn't feel like it was um, crucial at the time. I didn't feel like I was on death's door. But I was forced really to come out with it, and that's the truth. What what happened was that um, a media organisation had found out after about 18 months that I'd been diagnosed, and Channel 7 came to me and said, look, this is the situation, what do you want to do? And I said, let's tell the truth, eh? So the, the reporter came to Adelaide from Melbourne, I was from the Herald Sun, and sat in front room and with a, someone from Channel 7 and my wife and I, and I was completely honest, showed them the medical reports, and, and she wrote the story extremely truthfully and um, that was just before the Golden Slipper. It was a couple of days before and the article came out the day of the Golden Slipper but it sort of got out that day and I was in Sydney with my wife Annie and it was like the whole world had changed for me, Pete, because um, I think people got a big shock and thought that I was on death's door and uh, I um, fortunately, you know, I was on telly the next day so they realised I wasn't. So yeah, look, it, it was a big thing. I 
just wanted my family to know. I had to tell Channel 7. I was signing contracts with them and I had to be honest. So I just would prefer to have been private about it, but I'm not. And honestly, it's been quite interesting seeing Neil Danaher over the last two or three years and to see how he's been up front and what a difference he's made. Now, I'm not in that situation. It's been a bit of a lesson for me, though, and um, I'm probably happy now that it's out there. Does it make you think about fame, Macca, because you are one of the best-known faces and voices in Australia? It gave me a bit of a shock as to the affection that some people have for you, and that's reassuring. Um, Pete, we live in a world where we don't please everyone. Uh, You know that. I mean, we do our best, and for some people it's great, and for others it's not good enough. So you get used to that over the years. But when this did come out, I did realise the... um, impact you do have on people and um it, it's it's you know it's humbling to be truthful because we're only doing a job it's mm. a public job but you know i know you pretty well and you know me pretty well i never feel like i'm quite done it yet i don't feel like i've mastered it um and i'm sure you're the same exactly you know you prepare hard for everything you do i'm the same so when uh when uh people come up to you and say look Bruce, we care about you and um, all the best or, oh, you know, I remember that cause. And they do that when they feel like they can come and ask you about your health and things. It's, it's, it is, um, it's you know, quite moving, to be honest, Pete. I think you've famously once said, Macca, that um, some people say that you're twice as good as you actually are and the others say that you're half as good as you actually are. Yeah, they, and that's the way I've always felt it because... I feel like I'm, you know, I know I'm a good caller. I'd be lying to you if I didn't know, because I wouldn't keep my job. But, I, you know, sometimes I think I call, you know, pretty well, and other times I think I call not so well. Um, but I know for some people I'm the ant's pants, and for other people I'm no good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, and I'm not hopeless. Uh, I know that. But there's nothing you can do that's going to please some people. It's just your style. And I know I've got some infuriating things that I do on air and I can't help myself. We all have. That's me and that's you. It's just the way we are. You wouldn't be yourself if you didn't do it. Mm. And, um, And for other people, I strike the right chord. When, and you would have gone through this a lot in your career, people, young ones, come to you and say, you know, I'm starting. What should I be? I always say to them, be the best you. Don't be the best Peter Donegan or Dennis Cometti or Brian Taylor. Be the best you. Um, now, that's, um, I think, the best bit of advice any of us can give anyone. And so all those things that drive people mad are me. And all those things that please people are me. I can't change that. One of the other things you said, I think, is that you're always going to come off here unhappy. To me, that brings out the perfectionist in you because you want everything to be perfect. And the day that it is perfect, what's the point of going on after that? Because you're only going to go down from there. It's that cross on your back and it, it drives you mad, but it drives you on. Yeah. It's a combination. It's um, it's the thing that uh, makes you try harder the next time. I'm still, you know, we're talking a day before you're about to call a game in Adelaide and so am I. And I've been thinking this week, how I prepare for that match and how I can prepare better. I've actually come up with a... Now, I've been calling footy for a long time. 
I've actually come up with something this week that I think has improved my preparation, and I'm happy. Now, I'll probably fine-tune that in the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks leading into the finals, but it's taken me this long in my career to get to a point where, yeah, that's a better way of doing it. Now, you're changing all the time. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, you're forever striving to become more efficient, and in doing so, then hopefully you can produce a better performance. I'm a great believer... In the better you prepare, the better you perform. Now, that doesn't always happen, but what it does do, it gives you every chance. It gives you the best chance to perform well. It's a funny thing, calling. Um, you know, some days it clicks and some days it doesn't quite. And I've learnt over the years, when you start not so well in your court, let's say football, and you're halfway through the first quarter and you don't feel like it's happening, then I've realised don't force it. Just sort of let it happen naturally. Other times you might just feel good at the start of the match and it just flows. So it's a weird thing, isn't it? You'd know Mm. that. I'll talk a little bit later on about um, some of the moments that you've had where big events and, and what you do to prepare for those. But that word prepare, when I think of you, I think of preparation. Nobody prepares like you. I do a lot of prep, but you put me in the shade with the way that you prepare. And you're still very much a pen and paper mm. kind of guy, aren't you? Is that because it goes in better if you're writing it down? I think so, Pete. For me, it does. And, that, that, and it is laborious, and it probably is a reason why it takes me a while to get it all done. But, yeah, if I write it down, it just sinks in. It, it helps me remember, and whether it's horse racing or Olympics or, you know, or, or footy or whatever I might be doing, it's, it's a, a journal or you know, sheets of paper, and it's writing it down and then getting an order. So that's the way I do it. I use an iPad. I don't use a computer much. I'm, I'm, you know, it's ridiculous, but I'm not that good with um, the modern stuff, and I should be because, uh, you know, it, it's so, you know, Google helps so much in preparing, but I do it the old way. Now, I'm fortunate. I work for Channel 7. It's a big organisation. They can afford to have researchers that help. I've got a guy called Josh Kay, who you know mm. well, has been an incredible person. There are other people in that organisation like Dave uh, Frith and others, but Josh particularly. Now, if I didn't have a Josh paper, I'd probably have to do things a little differently, but I am still pen and paper. It's the way I do it. It sinks in. It, it, it just, uh, it's the best way of studying for me. And it completes the package because it's it's not only about what you do when the red light comes on, it's what you do before the red light comes on, and you're the shining example of that. You were talking about the fact that you're tired. I guess that's a byproduct of all the pressure that goes along with your job because your job is full of pressure, and it has been for a long time because you're at the pointy end of the pyramid, really. It all stops with you in lots of ways. I feel like I've got a reputation to protect a bit, and... Yeah, and that does bring pressure. Mm. The job hasn't got easier. I'd be sitting, if I'd be lying to you if I said it's got easier, it's got harder. And it's got harder for a few reasons for me. One is that I'm older. Um, And, you know, I'm probably not as sharp as I was. Secondly is that there is an expectation. Uh, And now, and then you put pressure on yourself. So I do feel that in a generic sense, not, not, maybe day-to-day, week-to-week, that I've got something to protect. Um, you know, I can get away with a bad call or two. We all do that uh, with a, making a mistake. I don't want that to happen, but it can happen. But I, the, I guess I'm sitting here now at, you know, almost 65 years of age, 
not sure how long I'll keep working for, um, thinking to myself, the one thing I don't want to happen is to not be as good consistently as I've been. I don't want somebody at Channel 7 or my wife Annie to tap me on the shoulder and say, Macca, I reckon you should think about it. I would like to think I can control that. I would like to think that when I decide that this is the right time because of oh no, that at least oh no. Now you and I are in a you know you're younger than me, we're, but we're only by a couple of years. We're not that far apart. Yeah, we both would hate to leave a long way from our top. Now I don't feel as if I'm going to leave at my absolute best. I feel that my absolute best might have been a few years ago. Who knows? I'm hoping it's still in front of me. I'm hoping it is. But I don't want to leave when I'm past my best. And I would hate to think that, you know, a, a body of work that's, you know, how many years, whatever it is, uh, is diminished by a poor finale. Now, we've all experienced great callers in Australia. Some do get out at their best. I'm not going to go into those that I think didn't get out at their best, but mm. we know who the, some of them are, and they've been incredible. Now, it probably doesn't diminish their career overall, but... I would like to think that when I finish up, I'm still doing a good job. One of those callers that you're talking about, Macca, is someone who has just come into my mind and I would have spoken about him in this interview anyway. What you're saying is very similar to something that Bill Collins said to me in an interview that I did with him 31 years ago when he was about to call his last Melbourne Cup with Ken's Eye. He said he wanted to go out while he was still on top of his game and he was an idol to you and he was an idol to me. And what you said is almost word for word what he said 31 years ago when I spoke to him at the finishing post at Flemington. Well, he's had the biggest influence on my career, not, not through any – I mean, I, I didn't – I got to know Bill. I'd love to have known him a bit better because I lived in Adelaide for most of that career. But I, I went to Melbourne. I worked for another network, basically. But he was an enormous influence on my career, the biggest, the biggest in my life. Greg Miles comes to mind recently. Now, Greg, like you and I, looked up to Bill. Greg – retired after the Melbourne Cup a year and a half ago, he um, he got out right at his top. Mm. I mean, he knows that he could still be doing it. Um, you know, uh, Greg decided that that was the moment. And uh, how brilliant that is. Now, how do we know that moment? I think you do within. I think you do within. But you probably need a guiding light outside as well. It depends on your circumstances too, where you're at in your life. My health might play a role, Pete, you know, over the next few years. But it is the challenge for all of us that have long careers to know when to leave. See, the problem is we love our jobs so much. We're at the you know the, the sharp end of all these great things that millions of Australians love, and we've got the best seat in the house, you and I. How do you give that up? Um, it's not easy. And then also, how do you give up not having a public voice? and not expressing yourself publicly, it's not easy. Um, and it's not just ego that's involved. It's actually just yourself because what happens, your job becomes part of you, a big part of you. It's you, how do you disconnect? Mm. And that's not easy to do because for the rest of my life, the Melbourne Cup's going to be the most important day of the year for the rest of my life, whether I'm involved or not. And for the rest of my life, when the ball's bounced in that AFL grand final, I'm going to get an urging. And for the rest of my life, when they line up for the 100-metre final, I'm going to wish I was there. 
So, you know, it's not easy, Pete. It's yeah. not easy to disentangle yourself from it. Last question on what you've just been saying. When you do disentangle yourself and when the time comes, will you disappear? Will, will we not hear from you or will you ease your way out gently over a progression of a few years? I would have said three years ago, four years ago, if you'd asked me that, the, I'll disappear. I'll go quickly um, to something else and you won't hear from me. But, you know, I'll, I'll mention Anne, my wife, who's in the media herself, and she's a wise head, and she's talked to me for a lot of years about this and said, you know, Macca, you're wrong. You should just cut back to degrees and end up just doing probably horse racing. Not calling, but horse racing, because that's really your first love and it's what you're most natural at. And maybe that's what will happen. So, Peter, I've probably learned over the last only three or four years, and here I'm at 65 almost, that I think I will reduce and reduce. And I'd like to stay with Channel 7 in all my broadcasting life. And now with Racing.com, I see that as an angle. But I would think that maybe I could, you know, go um, through degrees. And it would be, you know, maybe you give up the footy, maybe give up the Olympics and stay with the horses. Now, I haven't even discussed this with Channel 7, to be honest. But, you know, but that's probably, when I say I haven't discussed it, I've certainly had big generic talks about the future, but we haven't discussed about the the bits and pieces. So that's probably how I'm thinking now, Pete. But the other thing I'm a little bit interested in is giving back. I really want to give back in some way, and whether that be, you know, charitable sense, which we all do our bits for charity, all of us do that, but I'd like to give back and maybe, you know, maybe it's um, on a board or two, in an area that you feel like you can contribute. So it's quite exciting, I reckon, um, now, whereas before, when I thought, no, I'm just going to cold turkey it, it was um, like jumping off the cliff, wasn't it? Now it does feel better for me. One last thing, again, referring to what you were just saying, what would be harder to give up, the Olympic Games or football? Because a lot of people call football, Mm. but you call the Olympics. The Olympics are not the same without you calling them? <laughs> well, it's a good question, Peter, and it's a hard one to answer because, you know, I'm often asked, you know, what have been the most important things in your broadcasting career? And I always say AFL has arguably been the most important because it's the sustainability. It's the one that goes for seven months of every year. But I think for me, what changed my career was the Olympics. You know, I went from somebody to somebody else because of the Olympic Games. So, yeah, look, the Olympics, if I'm at a network that have got, track and field, and you and I have done so many of these over the years, it would be extremely difficult. I mean, the um, the one that I didn't do was, you know, I, I went to London and you called track and field in your normal brilliant self, and it drove me mad listening to you <laughs> in the last week because I came home from doing the swimming for the, um, you know, um, the international broadcast, who you work for as well, and uh, and heard your calls and thought, oh, God, um, they've forgotten me already. But, um, no, uh, never. But, but um, I think to give up the Olympic athletics, if seven were doing it, is going to be something that um, is going to be pretty hard to do. Uh, I quite what happened in London to uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, I'm sure, had the understudy do one performance you know every what, Pete, now and then, but he was still Sir Lawrence Olivier. Um, you, what you got in, and you did, uh, we, you know, it was a super job, but you had, I think, the most exciting 100-metre final ever because mm. there was a real chance he might get beaten by Blake and others, mm. and you had the most extraordinary field. You had Gay, Gatlin, Blake, 
and Bolt in the one race. And you had Bolt just about at his best. I mean, he was quicker in Berlin three years earlier. But I felt when they lined up for that 100 final, I was actually in the lounge at Heathrow on my way home and able to um, watch the final. So I didn't hear your call of that. I heard the BBCs, but I I saw the whole thing and uh, I was incredibly impressed with how that race played out, but also incredibly empty because I wasn't involved. And I think a lot of people who were watching it were probably empty, the fact that you weren't calling <laughs> well, it, to be honest. Of you, mate. No, I don't think so. It's a great journey, and we've already spoken about part of that journey. We're going to take a break and find out where it all began. Bruce McAvaney is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Bruce after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. What a pleasure and an honour it is for me to have Bruce McAvaney as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. That pronunciation of your name, your name is mispronounced a lot and I've done it myself. How do you say your own name? McAvaney. Do you get annoyed when people say the other way? Not at all. It never, I've never corrected anybody. And, and McAvaney is what most people call me. And with one N, I can see why. But my father said to me early on, he was a stickler, Daddy. He was a investigations officer in the taxation department. So he wasn't the most popular. And a goal umpire, Pete. Can you imagine? What a combination. He must have been. A, he's no longer with us. If only he'd been a parking officer, he would have had the trifecta. He certainly would have had the daily double. But he, um, he'd say, Bruce, tell him it's McAvaney. And I said, Dad. I don't actually care. And he said, well, I do. <laughs> no, but he didn't really. But, you know, McAvaney, and that, that's the way. But um, Irish, County Cork. But, you know, Dad's name was Roy, and, um, you know, a lot of people probably think we're Scottish, but um, we're from we're Irish descendants. Your dad didn't only give you your name, but he he also gave you a love of horses, I think. That that was the first thing that was instilled in you, that you loved that beast. Yeah, I did. And, and Mum too. I mean, Mum and Dad came from pretty interesting backgrounds, uh and both, you know, love sport, full stop, but the horses. Um, and, you know, I'd talk to my father about the best ones that he had seen and mum as well, and they had their favourites. Um, and my first memory, Pete, is um, of the races is being at Morpherville for the Derby in 1958 when uh, Bart Cummings uh, actually won his first group one. Now, I had no idea at the time, but that was the first group one that Bart won. And uh, I can distinctly remember to this very day standing outside the mountain yard and looking in and there was a horse called Jordan that was a hot favourite in the race. Bart had a horse called Stormy Passage and I can remember Pat Glennon getting on Jordan and um, it was, you know, I was nearly five. Um, I was born in 1953. So it's my first racing memory. So we go back a long way. And it turned full circle because you and I sat in that beautiful cathedral in Sydney a couple of years ago and said goodbye to J.B. Cummings. We did, and he was a big part of my life, uh, Pete. I got to know him extremely well, and he was an Adelaide boy, obviously. And, um, yeah, Bart was a huge part of me and my life, and uh, along with C.S., Colin Hayes. So, mm. you know, we had this incredible run in South Australia in the 1960s. We had the golden period of Australian racing for us, where Bart and particularly, but Colin forged their careers. So, yeah, um, we had a rich history, and that was part of my upbringing. So I got my love of horse racing through parents, and I think a lot of people would say that, wouldn't they? 
I always felt a bit strange walking up to Butt in the mounting yard and calling him Butt. I always wanted to call him Mr Cummings. Such was the regard that I held him in, and probably the same with CS as well. And it made me think how lucky we were, and you were very close to both of them. Did you pinch yourself to think that here you are, this little fellow who liked the races and fell in love with the colour and the excitement that you could walk up to the biggest names in the sport and get their admiration as well as their ear? Certainly, absolutely, with those two guys. I remember sitting with Colin Hayes doing a, what you'd call it a today, tonight story these days. It was a, a different name than those days. And sitting with him in a park in Adelaide when I was pretty young, actually, in my early 20s, I just sort of started in my career at Channel 7 South Australia before I went to Melbourne. And I did pinch myself, you know, sitting with CS and, you know, I went to Lindsay Park a few times and just stood with him and Peter and a young David and watched track work. And with Bart particularly, one one of the fondest memories I've got of Bart was almost at the end. It was, and we didn't know at the time, but I went out to Prince's Farm and had Sunday lunch with him and uh, Val May. And, um, yeah, I, I, I did get close to Bart. I travelled around the world with him promoting the Melbourne Cup and got to a point where, you know, I did pinch myself and felt, God, I'm close to this guy who, you know, is Bradman in many ways. Yeah. And, and Reg Fleming said it so well, didn't he? I probably yeah. said it to you, Pete, where he said, you know, when he won the 12th Melbourne Cup, he said, you know, 99.94 12 Melbourne Cups, you know, this is Bradman-esque. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, we do get exposed to people that we look up to. But for me, they are, they're, they're two that um, were pretty special, to be honest, uh, JB and CS. So the journey begins here in South Australia. Uh, would it be fair enough to say that you're a bit of a bugger when you were at school? Um, that would be fair enough. In fact, <laughs> in fact um, I was more than a bit of one. Uh, yeah, I, I, had, I had good years and bad years, Pete. It was quite strange. And if you looked at my report cards, you know, you, got, you might get one year and think, oh, good model student. And then the next year you think, wow, what's this boy going to turn out to be? It, it was just me. I, I was, I mean, I was hard to curtail to be truthful um, and there is a report card at home that my sister had given to my wife that my kids have seen that you know they can always show me and say dad but yeah look I was a big mixture at school I was um, often disruptive and um, a poor student in Why was that ways. because you just weren't into it? You just must couldn't get your head around? It's hard, it's hard to know people because I look back at it now and I'm even confused about why it was because I wasn't a rebel as such. I wasn't a, you know, I wasn't breaking the law, but I was a disruptive influence in class, and I didn't fulfil my potential in any way, shape, or form as a student. I failed twice at school, and these days you don't even fail because they just push you for through. But yeah, but I, at the same time, I was, you know, I was a decent football and cricketer. When I say decent, I sound like I'm bragging, but I was at a reasonable level with both football and cricket. So I had that part of me in the sportsmanship, but in the other part I was, um, you know, I was pretty hopeless. And I, I look, my parents were both into education in a big, big way. It was one of their driving points, and it must have driven them mad. You played under-19s football, Macca, didn't you? Yeah, Woodville. And, you know, I was captain of Woodville High, both footy and cricket. So, you know, it was I was keen. Uh, and I... Just, you know, wasn't good enough, Pete. I, you know, I, I was played A1 Amateur League here in Adelaide. I was at a reasonable standard. I was, you know, um, but not good enough to be an elite footballer or cricketer. But I, you know, I had, when I was probably 13, 14, 15, I thought, wow, you know, I'd love to play league football and test cricket or state cricket. And they were 
two of my three burning ambitions. The other one was to call the Melbourne Cup. So, yeah. You I, told someone when you were about five or six you'd call the Melbourne Cup, didn't you? I said I'd like to. I wish that's what I want to do. Yeah, it was. It was right from the beginning, from the very start. So I've lived the dream. Mm. But um, I didn't get there with football or cricket. But see, so, yeah, so school years were strange, Peter. I was, I was what you said I was. And then after school years, you had a few clerical jobs, as uh, I think most of us did. Tell us where the big break came. 5DN, Merv Thomas. What happened? I was working in the public service for Telstra. I'd uh, taken a day off on a Monday to go to the Kilmore Trots to back a couple of horses. I'm sitting on the plane with a bloke called Kevin Hillier, not the Kevin Hillier that a lot of Victorians would know as a broadcaster, but a Kevin Hillier in South Australia who was doing trotting trials and was a very good friend of mine, keen punter. And we chatted away and I said, Kevin, you know, I always wanted to call the horses. And he said, come and do the trotting trials with me. And uh, it took him about six months to talk me into it. So I went out and did Globe Derby on a Sunday morning and on a Wednesday night it was the best grounding I could have because I'd wear overalls on a Sunday morning, no colours. Anyway, um, Oakbank came up. Ray Fewings and Ron Paps were the callers. One of them was on leave. Merv Thomas went to Kevin and said, will you fill in at Oakbank? And he said, no, but I've got a young fella that you should try. So I did an audition, stood in the crowd at the Gawler Trots with a tape recorder with Merv Thomas hanging over my shoulder and then I went and did Oakbank about a week or two later, the bit behind the hill. Now, in those days, there was no TV coverage. I could have said anything, Pete, because no one saw the horses. <laughs> anyway, um, one thing led to another. They put me on a retainer. I was still working in the public service. I'd call one race on a Tuesday night and one on a Saturday night. I'd get $50 a week for doing it. And it was the happiest day of my life. And then Ron Paps went to Melbourne to join, I think it was 3UZ. It was. It would have been called 3UZ. Yep. We had four callers in those days. And... Um, I got the chance, and um, I left the public service and went to 5D, and so how lucky am I? I remember hearing your voice probably for the first time when you were calling the Angle Park Greyhounds on mm. Thursday night, and I was calling the Sandown Park Greyhounds yeah. on Thursday night, and we'd hear your voice coming through the betting ring even before they'd broadcast it on air in Melbourne. And it's a funny thing, I heard yours, and I thought, wow, that young fella's good, and then we met at uh, Geelong, I think, was probably the first time when that it might have been before that, Pete, but when they brought all the callers together for the Geelong opening of the Geelong harness racing track. So most of my calling early was greyhounds and harness, and did a bit of horse racing, which you know I would love to have done more. But Ray was still the main caller, so yeah, so that's um, that's how it happened for me. And that first Melbourne Cup that you were talking about, and we're leaving a few things out along the way, and we'll probably go back to them because, as you know with me, Maker, <laughs> things will be a bit disjointed. <laughs> that first Melbourne Cup was the first million-dollar Melbourne Cup when Pat Hyland combined with What a Nuisance and won the day that Prince Charles and his princess were there. Absolutely. Foster's Melbourne Cup. It, it doesn't was. ring so well now, does it? But it was. That's what it was. And... Um, all the things you said. So it was an historic day. John Maher and uh, you know Lloyd Williams, of course, had won with just a dash. But this was the first time his colours were carried to victory. And, of course, we know what's happened since then. So an incredible day. How um, did you feel when the last horse was being loaded into the gates for that 1985 Melbourne Cup? On the edge of the cliff. Yeah. Yeah, it's the most nerve-wracking moment um, because you're hoping. You're hoping the next three minutes and... 30 seconds, you survive. Mm. It's not easy. You've been through it. It's hard to describe if you haven't been through it. I mean, I talked to Greg a lot about it, I talked to Bill about it, talked to you about it. It's hard to um, aptly describe 
the pressure you're under. Anyway, because the cup, um, you know, it's not hard except from Chiquita Lodge on, and then it's incredibly hard into the home turn. You know, it's it's they come up the straight, and then they go along the riverside, but then they get a long way away from you, and then you start to shake because, you know, it's getting exciting and you're holding those big binoculars. And in those days, we didn't have those huge binoculars, you and I. We had the 10 by 40s instead of the 15 by 60s, and we got to get those, and they helped. But technically, it's a hard race to call, and you know that it's the one race you can't mess up. So that very first time when they went in for the 1985 Melbourne Cup, I thought on the edge, Pete. Mm. What was your best call of the Cups, Mackie? You called four. The one that I remember probably as much as anything is... Natsuki won't make it, yeah. and the big mare wins. Yeah, that was – Pete, it's funny because I think that was my best call of those four. I didn't think any of the four were that good. I purposely never heard them back. I just don't want to hear them, Peter. Why is that? Oh, because I'd be disappointed, I reckon. But the big mare wins, I, you know, and I took a chance that day and I got away with it. Um, I felt like that was probably the only one I got close to feeling happy about. Um, you know, God, they were hard. Um but I, I reckon they take thirty years to master, and that's how many you know Bill and Greg did, and some. But um, yeah, that was I think the only one that I felt afterwards a sense of not just relief, a sense of I've done a fairly good job. I think it's a hard thing. It's very personal, Pete. It's very personal. Um, I remember that changing topic, but I did an Australian Cup where I got the photo wrong with at Talag and Bone Crusher and. Um, you know, the, the rest of the call was okay, but I thought Atalak had held on. And then I was doing the Channel 10 News, and um, I don't know how this happened, but I had to go back. But before going back to the Channel 10 News to hear my replay of Bone Crusher not getting up, I heard Bill's replay and that famous hitting of the desk. And He nearly broke the desk that he day. He did, and it was, you know, arguably, I think we asked him, you know, and he probably thought it was his best call. Mm. And... Um, and that's saying something. Yeah, because he had so many and, you know, Bone Crusher, Waverly Star. But, oh, Peter, I got the photo wrong and Bill got it right and the accurate one was right again. And I felt completely gutted um, because I'd got that photo wrong. So it's very personal race calling, very personal. And, you know, at the end of my career, I'm, whatever happens, I'm going to be as probably as proud about calling the Melbourne Cup as anything. The only thing that comes close is probably Cathy mm. and those maybe those big 100-metre finals. But that's how important it was to me. It was, I think, singularly the most important thing I've ever done in my career is to, yes, to be able to say I'm a Melbourne Cup caller. And that's weird in a way, but that's how important it was for me. Yeah. Let's take a break and we'll talk about Cathy and we'll talk about the Olympic Games and we'll talk about so many other great moments in your broadcasting career. Bruce McAvaney is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Don't go anywhere. We've got more after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. What a fascinating chat it has been with the great Bruce McAvaney on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Macca, we spoke about the first Melbourne Cup. By that stage, you'd done the Olympic Games. What sort of a, a feather in your cap was it to do your first Olympic Games? It felt big, Pete. It just felt like an opportunity. That, And to me, it is the event in world sport. I mean, the World Cup is about to start. And, you know, that, I think, is um, the most important event to the most 
number of people in so many ways. But for me, it's the Olympics is number one. Um, and, you know, to be able to be the caller of athletics, which I think is the number one sport at the Olympics. Um, so when I went to Los Angeles in 1984, it was not so much a dream come true because I didn't even think, I thought that was, you know, something I'd never get a chance to do. So it was an incredible opportunity. It was a great games. It was different. Um, it was the beginning of the commercialization of the Olympics and it was Carl Lewis and a whole lot of other things. And it was an opportunity maybe to use the skills that I had as a race caller to use as a broadcaster in track and field. And, um, I loved it. And you're working alongside people like Raylene Boyle, who we just love, don't we? Yeah, and you look yeah. up to. Um, so it was a, an enormous opportunity. And as it turned out, Peter, I mean, it, at, in those days, I mean, Rupert Murdoch paid $10.6 million for those Olympics and the Seven Network had paid $2 million for those four years early. So it was a, the first of the quantum leaps in broadcast rights. And it was the first time really in many ways, I think, that the Olympics became not only the biggest sporting event, in this country, but the biggest television event as well. So that all probably coincided in 1984. So the timing for me was, you know, it was, it was good. I asked you about your feeling before the last horse was loaded in the Melbourne Cup. What's your thought process before the 100 metres final at the Olympic Games? Because it is, I think it's taken over now as the biggest sporting event from the heavyweight championship of the world. It is the event. What's your thought process like in the seconds before that race to keep an open mind because you never quite know what's going to happen we and you've been through it Pete you know that Bolt's going to be slow out and steaming home you know that Lewis is going to give Johnson a start but you've got to almost you you, you do all your homework you've got your instinctive feelings you know where to look but you've got to keep your eyes wide open and an open mind because anything can happen you've got nine and a half seconds to spit it out to be honest and the truth is you've got to make a decision whether to concentrate on few rather than many. And I think in the end you do concentrate on few rather than try and call them all. I think you I, have to. I probably started in 1984 wanting to call every runner in that race and I've got to now in 2018 realising that that's not the way to go. So that's evolved over the years. So as they go to the blocks, I mean, there is an incredible feeling that runs through your veins. You know it as a caller. It's, it's, it's wow, it's about to happen, but it's... Eyes open, mind wide open, ready for anything and let it happen. Mm. And I'm sure something similar before Kathy's race in 2000. We often talk about the amount of pressure that was on her and you've spoken about the pressure that was on you. It was phenomenal to think the audience that you had for those 50-odd seconds. Peter, it was a time that... I'm not going to go into all of this because we haven't got time today. And I, I, there's a few things I don't want to say, but I was under a lot of pressure for lots of reasons. There have been a few things that have happened that probably I'll never disclose that had I'd suffered a few things unfairly from outside sources prior to the Olympics in 2000. And it was a difficult time. And I hadn't had a great first couple of days hosting. I'd done too much to be honest I did the opening ceremony I did triathlon the very next morning and hosted the very next night and I was struggling and I knew it and I hadn't got away to a good start so I needed to call track and field well so within track and field there was one event that was incredible we know that the build up had been four years um, it had been on everybody's mind um, 
and here we came. And it was the third or fourth. What well, we started on the Friday, so uh, athletics. So it was on the Monday night. So that morning, I was doing my radio interviews, and I had a dry mouth. I realised that something was different. So I got to the track. All those other great races happened, but the minute Kathy came out for the final, again I felt nervous, and I just had to talk myself into saying, just relax and. Just let it happen. Nobody would have picked the fact that you Slow were nervous, down. though. I was, and I actually can remember absolutely saying to myself when Raylene was talking a few minutes before, just settle down. You know what? You've done the homework. Just relax and enjoy it and slow down. And mouth was dry, took a sip of water, and I talked myself into calming myself, and then the rest of it unfolded. But, yeah, look, it, I reckon... At the end of my career, if somebody was to write one sentence, and you can take it as a compliment, whichever way you like, he was the bloke that called Kathy's race. Mm -hmm. That would do for me because it wasn't the perfect call, but it was the best I could do on that day. And that's one I have heard back because I've been forced to. I'm proud of it. It's not perfect. Why is it not perfect? And It was pretty bloody close. I would have changed a couple of things. Um, But... It's the way it is, and um, God, it was a moment. It was a night. It was just the whole thing was a marvelous, marvelous to be involved. Were you as relieved as Kathy when they went across the line? Probably, I was probably more excited than Kathy. I mean, Raylene, you know what a relief, what a great, great line, what a what a line, and your lines too. What a line, but no, what a relief. Um, I was a bit, but the whole night was incredible, Pete. I mean, it had been great racing before, and then we had the ten thousand meter final. And then with about five laps to go in the 10,000-metre final, I'll get a message through my ear. Hey, Bruce, Kathy's behind you. She just won. She'd come up to the stand. Take your headphones off. Um, we're going to leave the 10,000 for a moment. Do a very quick interview with Kathy. So I did that. And here's Kathy. who Let me fill you in a bit. Our son, Sam, Annie and I's son, was born one week before Christmas Day 1994. When he came home, it was Christmas Day. It was his first day home and... Kathy and Nick came around to our house on that Christmas day. So we go back. She's a close friend. And here she is. She's won the Olympics. And she's standing behind us. So I'll go up and do that interview with her. And I'm, I was very emotional. And then you go back and there's two laps to go in the 10,000. And Gabriel Celesi's fighting off Turga. It's singularly the most exciting night of my broadcasting life. And I'm hoping there's another one out there, Pete, but I don't think there will be with so much significance and so important for me personally. Yeah, hard to imagine that anything could possibly ever match that in the minds of Australians. But four years later, you see what Elga Rouge does. Yeah, and that that really got me, Pete, because, you know, here's a guy that had been unbeaten basically for eight years and had lost two races and no Olympic finals. For one reason or another, he'd been spiked in 96 and they'd got the tactics completely wrong in 2000 and I wanted him to win desperately. I wanted him to fulfil his potential. Um, and I felt really nervous again then. And Dave Colbert, who I called alongside, he reminded me many a couple of years later, he said, do you know what you said to me? And he said, I got nervous. I said, what was that, Dave? He said, Dave, now don't worry. Just treat it like any other race. And he said, suddenly I realised it wasn't just the 1,500-metre final. It was something else. And that's how I felt about that race. And, you know, El Garouge was was a great race. And he fought off Laggard after being headed 
So he did the one thing he needed to do, and then, of course, a few days later, he did the ridiculous thing by winning the 5,000 that only Pavo Nermi had done, and in doing so, he had beaten, you know, two of the all-time greats in that 5,000 final, so in Kipchoge and also uh, Bikili. So great moments, Pete. You know, they're incredible, and, um, you know, they give me a tingle, not because I was calling, but, oh, wow. These guys and women, they rise to the occasion when it matters most. And so do you, all the way through to the Commonwealth Games in 2018. I'm going to give away a little behind-the-scenes secret here that involves both of us. The first race on the track at the Commonwealth Games this year was the 100 metres decathlon heats. And you and I both do a similar thing with the 100, and I was calling for the world feed and you were calling brilliantly for Channel 7. We're both looking at the monitor. What happened when we looked at the monitor and the runners went down on their blocks, Macca? Well, they weren't in sync, Pete, which, no. <laughs> which gave us a – which I'm not as sharp as you, and it took me a bit longer to work out. And so, you know, because the monitor is such an important part of our life, you know, in terms of callers. So we made... so the vision was delayed by about a second and a half from what was actually happening. Exactly. So the thing that I saw was the starter we hear in our headsets, the starter gone. saying, set, bang – and when the bang happened, the runners were still in the blocks on our monitors, mm, and we thought we had a problem there. No, exactly. So, and honestly, Pete, it took me a long time through those games to feel comfortable in photo finishes, and I talked to you about that because yeah. that's one of the things I've sort of prided myself a bit on, and you would have too, over the years to get the angles right, and we had a good angle. We were close, side by side. But it was a challenge, wasn't it? And yeah. Because generally, and it's a, for people listening, they probably – you know, they're thinking, what are they talking about? But generally, we're in sync with uh, with what's actually happening on the track, but we were there. You um, worked hard on trying to change that, and it was all too late for me. But, yeah, it's it's something that is not obvious to the people at home, but it's just one of the tricks that we have to learn, and it's one of the great challenges of our job. And here we are, veterans who have been to a lot, and yet something can be thrown up that can really throw a spanner in the works, and it did. It It really threw me. And just in closing, from the Commonwealth Games, the most exciting thing that happened at the Commonwealth Games was you watching Winks. <laughs> well, it, Pete, again, it was funny that day because I, you, you know, when she, I was worried that she might get beaten that day, and I'm, you know, it gets bigger and bigger every time she runs. And I'd said to a few people on the way out, you know, this is a big day in Australian sport. You don't realise how big it is because, you know, either this is going to happen or this is going to happen. And then, you know, I didn't realise. I knew mobile phones were behind me. I had no idea they were filming that. I was I was into it. And then, of course, I had no idea that they were going to play that. But I was pleased that when they did that you were sitting alongside me because I <laughs> realised that you, like me, um, got a big kick out of it. So, yeah, I, I was a bit embarrassed. But you know what? It's been a lot of fun to look back on that afternoon and realise that, yeah, it does matter. It does matter whether she wins or loses because we love a champion, don't we? Yeah, and it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It showed your passion for the sport and for that horse. When we take a break uh, and come back, I want to talk you talk to you about some of the Melbourne Cups when Seven took over the Melbourne Cup. We're running out of time, but I'm still going to ask you these questions. Bruce McAvaney is with me on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. I wish we had three hours for this. Our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives with the great Bruce McAvaney. Bruce, the cup went to Channel 7 in 2002. 
wasn't a bad few years to start, was it? Media Puzzle in 02 and then The Diva, 1, 2, 3. Extraordinary, Peter, wasn't it? Because you get one story and you think, how can that be bettered? Uh, and Ollie and Media Puzzle was uh, uh, an unbelievable day. Um, it was the dream come true for all of us. And, you know, you're working there. I'm with him. Richard Friedman's with us, who had had so much to do with Ollie you know, on the Friedman camp. They'd, they'd sort of grown up together a bit mm. in many ways, you know, those trips to Perth and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, Damien's reaction at the end of the race and um, Wayne's call and all those things. And, yeah, and then, of course, Maccabi Diva comes along and when she wins the first year, you think, oh, what a terrific mare. And then she wins the second year and, as Greg said, she does what no mare has ever done. And that incredible vision of her and Vinnie Rowe through, mm. through the slop and then, of course, the expectation of the third year, the build-up. You know, she wins a Cox Plate, Lee's humming or ahhing. Will she or won't she? And then, of course, she does and she wins. And, you know, that shot of her and Bossy waiting, looking at the grandstand. And that moment that, as Lee said, you know, it won't Go and find again. the youngest child. That's it. He thought about that line. Yeah. He told me afterwards. Yeah. Well, some of the best ad libs are well rehearsed. They but are. He, um, he nailed it. Mm. And um, it was a day that you and I. We'll never relive in terms of three Melbourne Cups, I don't think. It won't be bettered. Now, you might have said that about Kingston Town, but I it's a lot harder to win two Melbourne Cups than it is to win two Cox Plates. Yes. Um, you know, there have been, I think, 14 horses have won two Cox Plates or 13 and five horses have won the Melbourne Cup twice. And the Melbourne Cup's been going for 1861 versus 1922 or 21 or the Cox Plate. So... Yeah, now, Diva was extraordinary. And then, of course, we've had what's happened since, and each of them have been pretty special in their own right. But it was, as you say, uh, an incredible way to get back the rights to the Melbourne Cup and what a launching pad it was for us. You just said a line there, some of the best ad libs are better rehearsed. You've been to so many great sporting moments. One that springs to mind is something that we both called. Uh, you were doing it for seven again. Your line after... Djokovic and Nadal in 2012, that epic final that went for five hours and 53 minutes. And I think your line afterward was, nothing I can say can add to what you've just seen. And that just summed it up perfectly. Look, that was uh, an amazing night, Peter. And I, it was something that, in a way, when I, this is my, this is my philosophy on it. People have often asked, do you know what you're going to say at the end of it? This is how I try and do it. I try and have a big, broad picture, but don't try and know the exact words I'm going to say, but I have a, a sense of what I might say, a feeling, a gut feeling. It's a passion. It's a, whatever it might be. It's an emotive thing. And that night I wasn't sure what I'd come out with it, but I knew I had to say something. It had gone on and on and on. It was historically, you know, for the length of time and the, and, and the greatness of the match. So, yeah, and whilst I didn't know exactly what I'd say, I had a bit of a feeling that I had to say something that gave it um, a texture, and that's what came out. So, ninety-nine percent of the things that I've said at the end of races or events are not absolutely rehearsed, but there's a generic feeling about what I want to say, but they're not word for word. And that was one of those occasions. Has there ever been a sport maker where you have been calling because of your knowledge and your reputation? You get put into a lot of things. Has there ever been a sport where you've sat there and thought? I'm not sure that I should be doing this because I don't know it well enough. Ah, that's a good question. There's been a lot of sports I've probably been able to try and get away with. Um, look, I hosted rugby for five years, rugby union. 
And, you know, World Cup in 2003, I actually really enjoyed it. We didn't have the football. But had Gordon Bray fallen over, I couldn't have called it. Mm. And there have been a couple of instances during that time that there was a question asked, you know, would you like to call a match or two? Not because I wouldn't have done it with Gordon there because he's absolutely superb. And I realised it was beyond me. I don't know the rules well enough. And here I was hosting it because it is such a difficult game and even the experts have trouble with the rules. So I couldn't call rugby union. I couldn't call rugby league. But I haven't been thrust into those too often. Well, I'll give you the answer. I just answered it. I don't think I'm capable of calling test cricket now. I reckon I might have been 35 years ago because I don't think my knowledge now is up to scratch. I could call Donegan to McAvaney, but if McAvaney hooked the ball and got caught on the boundary line, I wouldn't be able to recall that three years ago he did the same thing. And I reckon that's important. I think that's how well you've got to know the sport. I'll give you one other example, Peter. It was suggested to me that I call the Melbourne Cups. Seven came to me a few years ago. Now, again, this is not common knowledge, and said, what did you call the cup? Even if it's the only grace you do for the whole carnival, and you would know what I said to them. I said, it's impossible. Absolutely. You've got to be calling. I said, I would have to go back and call for six to 12 months to be anywhere close enough to be good enough to call the cup. And they got it. They got it. So, yeah, I have put my hand up a few times and said, no, I'm not up to that. Hypothetical question as we come to the end of our chat. If I said to you, right, Omaka, your career is going to finish next year. Well, let's say, let's say 2020. So you can only do one thing to say goodbye. Would it be the AFL Grand Final? Would it be the 100 metres final of the Olympic Games? Or would it be the Melbourne Cup? Tokyo. The 100 final. Mm. That'd be my last call. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be my last call. So that would do me. Um, it's challenging. There'll be a new champ. A new day will be dawn. And uh, I'd like to be part of it. And I would like to think in many ways that might be my last call. So who knows? But if you gave me that choice, that would be it. I keep on saying this every time I do this show, but in particular for this one, I wish we had more time. It would be so brilliant to explore some of the magnificent things that you've been able to do in your career. I'm actually going to make sure that we get the full chat that we've had up on our uh, Twitter feed on at Your Sport Life. We'll have the podcast up there so you can hear everything that Bruce has had to say. In closing, one thing I did want to say to you. We were getting our photo taken by Josh Kay, who you spoke about, in the Olympic Stadium in Rio. He was taking selfies, and you and I were standing there in the stadium, and you said something to me that I've never forgotten. You said, we've got a great bond, you and I, mm. and I will cherish that. Mm. No, we have, Pete, because um, we experience the same things. Mm. Um, we know what it's like, and we know how thrilling it is and we also know that um, in many ways we walk a tightrope. And um, to be able to share that with somebody of a similar age who's been through the same things is pretty special, mate, so I love it. Thanks for coming in. I'll paraphrase what Greg Miles said. You're a champion and you're a legend. Thanks, Maga. Pleasure, Pete.
Bruce McAvaney, my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives, and we will be back with another edition of the program same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.